you ever felt you're being watched sometimes? Have you ever had a cold shiver run down your spine? Sometimes we go through that. Sometimes we look for answers to questions we don't really truly understand. Like, are we truly alone in the universe? Is there life after death? This world is weird. It gets weirder by the day. And in that weird are questions that we have as curious beings known as humans. Tonight, we look into some of those questions and get a little weird. Because we all are just a tad bit weird. Tonight on Weekend Weird. fall evening. Two lovers are getting together. Haven't seen each other for a very long time. They decide to go out to a lover's lane and be alone because it's their first time being alone in a very long time. Things start getting hot and heavy and they start making out. The radio plays when they're making out. Suddenly, a news bulletin reports that a serial killer has just escaped from a nearby institution. The killer has a hook from one of his hands. They say, be on the lookout and lock your doors tonight. The young lady starts getting a little antsy. She wants to get out of there real quick. She starts hearing things that she didn't hear before. Her boyfriend's like, no, no, let's just stay for a little bit. She keeps being insistent. We have to leave. Finally, the boyfriend relents. He's like, okay, let's go. He's dejected as he's driving home. Can't believe this is happening. Finally, he gets back to the home. He's going to let her out, hopefully kiss her goodnight from the car. He walks over to her door to let her out. And then he noticed, right on the door, right on the doorknob of the car, is a hook with a bloody stump next to it. Now that's an urban legend. It's probably been told by your parents, your grandparents, even some kids you knew in school. But what if I told you that that was based as a fact? That that fact and these murders had really occurred back in 1946 in a town that was terrorized during this whole murder spree. I'm Red Nick, and welcome to Weekend Weird, the show for the weird and mundane that's out here in this world. Uh, I'm joined today by a couple of guests. First of all, we got returning guests on Ghoul. Hello. And we got a first timer on the show. We got an old friend here. He's going to come in and chime in his thoughts. Uh, let me introduce y'all to Joel. Joel? What's up? What's up? Hey, so. Nick, you need to see if you can get, uh, you know, the X Files song uh, <laughs> on a podcast kind of infringing on some, uh, on some rights, you know? Because that whole time we we'll just change the key a little yeah. bit. You know, do that. The whole time you're explaining that story and like X Files is Yeah. Yeah. Well, the story I just told was the. Uh, 
hook uh, for a hand urban legend that was first told uh, during the Dear Abby uh, column back in the 1960s. Um, it's not real, but it does have some basis in fact, and which we'll talk about tonight. Uh, we're talking tonight about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, a series of murders that happened in the town of Texarkana, which is a town that is in two states. <laughs> One half of it's in Arkansas, the other half of it's in Texas. And these murders took place in the spring, uh, the winter, spring, and summer of 1946. The identified serial killer, the, the serial killer, which they called the Phantom, has yet to be identified. And it's it's pretty much a very uh, famous set of murders. Um, let me ask, you guys ever heard of these set of murders before? Or? Mm, nope. Nope. <laughs> they, they're called the Moonlight Murders? The Texarkana Moonlight Murders. No. Yeah, it's a pretty famous set of murders. I mean, if you live around the South, you would have heard of them. Even, I mean, it has basis, like, like some of the things we talk about on the show. Um, it has basis in popular culture, like the description of the killer was used as uh, the first basis of Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th films. After the sequel, that the first one, the first one is Killer Was a Mother, the mm-hmm. sequel, before he got the hockey mask, he, had, he wore a burlap sack with a hole cut out. Didn't the movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer, didn't that guy have a pick that he was walking around with? He had an axe. A hook. A hook, right. Yeah, he, he was hook. like, uh, yeah. he was moving like ice blocks or something. Yeah, he was, was he working at the docks or something. Yeah, he was working at the docks. And uh, like the hook legend, yeah, that goes into uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer, but uh, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders was done with a gun. But still, you, people change it to make it seem like you want to see so um, yeah, this is our first. Well, not my, not the show's first, but the first set of uh, unsolved murders. I did the Axeman back in March, but uh, let's dive into it. Y'all ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. It was a term coined by the media uh, in reference to unsolved again unsolved murders in and around Texarkana in the spring of 1946 by an unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer. The killer is credited with attacking eight people within 10 weeks, five of whom who were killed. The attacks happened on weekend between February 22nd, 1946 and May 3rd, 1946. So let's go into the first set of attacks that happened. Because these murders pretty much set this town into a state of panic throughout all summer. I mean... Uh, at dusk, city inhabitants were heavily armed themselves and locked themselves indoors while the police patrolled the streets and neighborhood. Many businesses lost customers at night. Stores sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and other protective devices. So, this can you imagine living back in at a time where you're just paralyzed? You live in a town, you're paralyzed by fear. Uh, no, it would be terrifying. And as we spoke off of uh, off the microphone, I would fucking move. Yeah. There's no way I can put up with that stuff. Yeah, I mean... Especially at a time where, like, not everyone had a car. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, biking or, like, walking or biking or public transportation was... You know what I mean? Like, right. it, you know, I don't know. I that, mean, there was public the, the transportation. There was public transportation throughout the town. It's just, 
you know, after dark, you don't want to go out. Well, no, that was okay. Public transportation yeah, wasn't town, but it's not like, hey, axe murder, chill, the bus is coming. Attacks only known to happen at night. Yeah, they have only known to happen at night. They didn't happen to a broad daylight. Yeah, happened just at night. Let's go to the first attacks. Um, around 11.45 on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollitz, age 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Janine Lowry, age 19, parked in a secluded road known as a lover's lane after having seen a movie together. Or anal point, depending on who you ask. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the uh, area was approximately 50 feet off of Richmond Road on an unpaved street about 100 yards from the last row of city homes. Around 10 minutes later at 11.55, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled, resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and flashed a flashlight in the window. I was going to say, not really a slight <laughs> idea to wear a white sheet over your head in, yeah, the, just, in the South. Exactly. <laughs> but all right. Not very subtle. Uh, not very subtle. Yeah. Right. Unsure if the man was pranking him, Hollis told him he had the wrong person, which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say. Both Hollis and Larry were ordered out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to take off your goddamn britches. After which he applied, he complied. The man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Wait, 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 hold on. There was a man asking another man to take off his underwear. Take off his pants. Oh, britches. Britches. I britches meant underwear. No, no, those are pants. All right, go ahead. All right. Larry would tell investigators that the noise was so loud she initially thought he had been shot, when in fact it had been his skull fracturing. Ugh. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob him, Larry showed him Hollis's wallet to prove he had no money after she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant ordered her to stand, and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run in a different direction up the road. Larry spotted an old car parked off the road but found it empty and again confronted by the attacker who asked her why she was running. When she responded that he told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, Larry fled on foot, running half a mile to a nearby home. A car passed by the residence, which he attempted to call for, but was ignored. Larry was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. The motorist left Hollins at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three, three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. They found Hollis's pants 100 yards away from the parked car. Larry was hospitalized overnight for minor head wounds, while Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures, but both survived the attack. Hollis and Larry gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to where, what their attacker looked like. Larry claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for eyes and mouth, and that she could not see under the mask that he was apparently African-American. 
Hollis alternatively claimed the man was white, around 30 years old, but Cassini cannot distinguish his figure features as he had been blinded by a flashlight. Both agreed the assailant was around six feet tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged, challenged Larry's account and believed she and Hollis knew the identity of the attacker and were recovering from him. Okay. So? That was the first attack. <laughs> and when was it reported? After, it was right a, after the it, incident? It was right after the incident. They ran and ran and got help. Okay. So and then, was it acted upon to see if who they tried to launch an investigation they, Well, they did launch an investigation on it. Uh, they couldn't find anyone. Um, so uh, a month had passed. Let's go into the first double set of murders. A month had passed since then. Hold on one second. Yeah. How big is this town? Pretty sizable town. Like, like is, is it a city or a town? It's a city, I believe. Okay. Uh, hold on. Which is important. To I mean, you, you know, it's, it's important to establish that because if it's a town of like 5,000 people, that's a lot more terrifying. It, it, it's, it's twin cities. Okay. It's Texarkana, Texas and Texarkana, Arkansas. They have two sets of police... Uh, they have two sets of town police, two um, county, I think two or three county sheriffs. Seems a bit redundant. Yeah, it's just, well, you have the Arkansas side and the Texas side. So. Yeah. In the uh, in the annexation war of 1812, <laughs> uh, Texarkana, or Texas lost. Uh, Texas law starts at the, at the Texas Corral. <laughs> Arkansas law starts at the Bennigans. Right. Right. Because they sent all their troops to the Alamo, yeah. they were able to defend off an attack from Arkansas. Yeah. in the back door. Alright, let's go to the first double murders. A month had passed since the February attack on March 24th, 1946. Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17, were found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan on Sunday, March 24th, 1946, between 8.30 and 9 a.m. by passing motorists. The motorists saw the parked car in Lover's Lane named Rich Road, which is now South Robeson, near a railroad, railroad, railroad spur 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67 West, close to a night spot called Club Dallas. The motorists at first thought both were asleep. Griffin, Griffin was found between the front seat on his knees with his, back, with his head resting on his cross hands and his pockets were turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car and both had been shot once in the back of the head, were full, back of the head and were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to the police that both had been killed outside the car and placed back inside the car. Mm. Coagulated blood was found covering the running board and had flowed through the bottom of the car door. A 32 cartridge shell was found, also found, possibly shot from a coat inside the blanket. No extent reports indicate either Griffin or Moore were examined by pathologists Local rumor had stated that a sexual assault had occurred, but modern reports refute this claim. In response to the murder, police launched a citywide investigation along with Texas and Arkansas City Police. 
the Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI. On March 27th, local police interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, including patrons and employees of Club Dallas, a local bar near the crime scene. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the Griffith Moore case, which would lead to the arrest and conviction of persons or persons responsible. However, the reward yielded no fruitful clues or suspects, instead producing over 100 false leads. A hundred false leads. hundred false leads, yep. Wow. Yep. Um, all right, so how are they tied to the, so far, like what's tying them between the, the first the attack, attacks? Well, we don't know because the first attacks, both of the uh, people that were attacked were still alive. This one, the first double murder. Could it have been like a... a what do you want to call it? <clears throat> a lover of the girl or something who was... Well, they didn't find anything. Stiffed um, by the that the girl? Well, I mean, that's well, like... Otherwise, why take the time and effort to put them back in the car? You know what I mean? After you murder them. If you're going to murder them, just murder them and drive away. Well, maybe this killer is sadistic. What's 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 sadist about putting them back in the car? I mean, maybe one and make it look like it was something that it wasn't. And I mean, that's thing like, if you're shot in the back of the head, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that murder didn't happen inside the car. You know what I mean? The windshield would have been shot out, or there'd be right. blood everywhere. Right. So that he obviously wasn't doing a lot to like cover his tracks or whatever. Right. So what's the point? Yeah. But you're right. It could just be sadism. Yeah, could be sadism. Let's go to the second double murder. April 13th, 1946. If he says double murder, I think of double rainbow guy, and it's really not the same feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Double murder! (laughs) You're a sick, sick man, (laughs) Ogle. It just pops in my head, man. Uh, (laughs) On the evening Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, Mm -hmm. was playing her auto alto saxophone on a, in a regularly weekly gig with her band, the Rhymeneers, at the VAM, VAW Club on West 4th Street in Oaks, Oak Street. Are you laughing at the name? Are you laughing at the It's the Rhymeneers. Is it? Rhymeneers? Rhymeneers. You know, man, they it's, were it's rocking 40, it. It's 46, man. Rocking, yeah. rocking at the VFW club. It's 46. That <laughs> hey, you gotta take you gotta take wherever you can get, man. Um, they they like, hey, come and play on dollar or a 15 cent beer night. You got 15 play. cent core night. Yeah, not even core is like because it wasn't invented. Yeah, yet. it was just core. <laughs> Around 1:30 a.m. Sunday morning, April 14th, for Fred Paul Martin, age 16. Arrived to pick her up for the performance. This was the last time the couple were seen alive. Martin's body was found around 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.W. Weaver and their son, lying on its left side at the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road by the fence. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand and finally through the back of the neck. Booker's body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body 
behind a tree. She was found by members of the boy's family along with their friend, Ted. I'm not going to try to butcher this person's last name. Don't you think that sounds like a crime of passion? How many times would someone who's like, how many shots did he have in him? Four. Oh. Were you describing bullet wounds or wounds? Yeah, he was shot once through the nose. I was going to say. He gives him like, the left, fourth rib from behind, the third time in the right hand, and finally in the back of the neck. Mm-hmm. All right, never mind. Who had joined the search party. Her body was lying on his back, fully clothed, with a right hand in the pocket and a button overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same one in the double mur- first double murder, the thirty two automatic Colt pistol. Martin's 40, 1946 Ford Club Coupe was found three miles away from Booker's body and 1.55 miles away from his body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities weren't sure who, sh- who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Rangers Captain Manuel Gonzalez said that, that examination of the bodies indicated that they both put up a, a terrible struggle. Martin's friend, Martin's friend said he was not be, he was not he did not believe an argument had happened between the victim victims and that Martin had hadn't had any enemies. Law enforcers were unable to locate Booker's saxophone at the crime scene. The saxophone was eventually discovered around six months later in October, October 24th, still in his black leather case in an underbrush near where Booker's body had been found. The reward fund extending $1,700 had accumulated for information leading to the person responsible in the Griffith Moore and Martin Booker murders. Rumors circulated around the area, with one rumor suggesting a local minister had turned in his own son as a suspect for the Booker Martin murders. Jesus. On April 18th, police captain Gonzalez issued a statement to the public during a press conference, assuming the public that the murderer had not been caught and a rumor circulating around the public in the newspapers were a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. So, okay, so after the first set of murders, they end up the sheriff, and then the second, and before the second set of murders, they ended up calling the sheriff's department, and the two town police end up calling the Texas Rangers. They send in Texas Rangers captain. What was his name again? Gonzalez. Gonzalez, nickname Lone Wolf. Okay, like probably like an army guy or something. Well, he was a pretty famous Texas Ranger, an investigator in Texas. So they end up calling him in. They're still not getting anywhere with any uh, suspects. Then the second set of double murders happens. Okay. So, thoughts? <laughs> I mean, what what I don't understand at this point, I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than what you're saying. Are they linked? or is it just Yes, spe- they are linked. They're the same gun. 32 automatic Colt pistol. Is it a common gun in that era? Yeah, I mean, it is a common gun. It's... Let me bring it up. It's a common bullet. A thirty-two automatic bullet. It can be used in... Let's see. Probably a versatile bullet. Yeah, it's a versatile bullet. It can be used in various variety of... uh, Pistols. 
but it's the same type of thought. So that's what's linking both of these murders together. And also that they're young couples. I see. Even the first set of attacks, that was a young couple also. Yeah, I mean, as an investigator, you gotta ask if you can't just assume that, like, these are links. Right. Um, it could just be a coincidence, but yeah, I mean, if there's, like, actual ballistic evidence, mm-hmm. then that's a different story. Right. Joe, you got anything to add? Um, no. <laughs> You're good, Joe. Go okay. Calm down. All right, the final set of uh, the final murders and the final set of crimes. Let's get to that. On Friday, May 3rd, somewhere before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder um, who was in his modest uh, ranch style home on a 500 acre farm off of Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He turned on his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife, Kate, Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for his sore back. He sat in his armchair in the living room, which was just off of the kitchen and bedroom. While Katie was in her bedroom, lying in a bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard as Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head, from a double, from closed double window, three feet away. That's terrifying. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like breaking of glass. She thought Virgil dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slumped back down in his chair. She saw blood. She saw blood and ran to him and lifted his head up. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face <sighs> from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went in her lower jaw just before the, below the lip, breaking it and splitting out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get to her feet. She ran to get the pistol from the front living room, but she was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted steel screen wire from the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed. She was going to be killed, so she stumbled towards her bedroom in the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and onto the side screen porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then through the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefooted and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Since no one was home, she ran 50 yards more to another house, which was owned by A.V. Platter. Platter answered her call for help. She gasped. Virgil is dead, then collapsed. Platter shot a rifle in the air to southern other neighbors. Another neighbor, excuse me, Elmer Taylor. Platter called to Taylor to bring his car because Mr. and Mrs. Stark Starks had been shot. Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Platter and their baby, 
drove with Mrs. Starks to Michael Minster's Hospital. Now it's Miller County Health Unit on Walnut Street. Mrs. Starks gave Mr. Taylor, the driver, one of her teeth with a gold filling. She was a semi-conscious state slumping forward on the front seat. So she lost, although she lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock, and her heart rate remained, remained normal. She survived, but her husband died. She got shot in the face and she survived. Got shot in the face twice and survived. Badass. Yep. Absolute badass. So, as you could tell after this murder, the town is even more of a damn panic. So, had she been able to describe this figure no, out? No, the she when she rushed up to see her husband and know she did, she immediately went towards to grab the phone to call the police. She was shot from behind. Um, she fell down. She heard the killer try to cut through the door. She immediately got the hell out of there. She had no time to actually look and see who this killer was. It's like gives me shivers thinking about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you're just just a normal night. Mm-hmm. You're at home. Mm-hmm. And then not only do you have to deal with the tragedy of watching your husband die. You get shot in the face. You get too. shot in the face. Yep. Wow. Yep. So what happens then afterwards? After that murder, the Billy County Sheriff's Department was notified just minutes after the alarm reached the Hope Police, Hope City Police. Arkansas State Police officers uh, Charlie Boyd and Max Tackett got the call and radio were the first officers on the scene. Some reports are contradictory. One officer said they found Stark still slumped a bloodstone chair. The chair had caught fire from an electrical heating pad. Smoke oh had filled the room. It was lit on fire. Smoke had filled the room. Was coming up all around the man between his legs. Yet Sheriff W. E. Davis, head of the investigation, said that when officers arrived at the scene, they found the they found the chair on fire, but Sparks' body was not burned because it fallen to the floor. Immediately after that, blockade was set up on. Uh, Several miles northeast and southwest on Highway 67 East. Sheriff Davis called in officers from the entire area to help in the investigation, some of which included two agents from the FBI and Captain Gonzalez, the lone wolf, and other rangers, Sheriff Presley and his deputies, Sheriff Jim Sanderson from Little River County, Arkansas State Police, local police, and, other, and many others. In the house, investigators found a trail of blood with scattered teeth. On the dining room table was... Dining room table was Mrs. Stark's work for making a dress. Gonzalez, after seeing the virtual river of blood, stated, It's beyond me why she did not bleed to death. There were only two bullet holes in the window, leading Sheriff Davis to believe that an automatic rifle had been used. Investigators declared that after killing shot Virgil, he waited patiently outside the window to shoot his wife. There were only three clues found at the scene. The first was the caliber of bullets. The second was a flashlight found in the hedges underneath the window that Mrs. Starks that Starks was shot from. The last clue was a bloody was a bloody prints around the house, shoe prints in the kitchen floor, smudged fingerprints in other places. Sheriff Davis stated that throughout the murder could not have been directly linked to the Phantom because the caliber was a .22. It is possible the killer is one and the same man. 
those who had been driving the area near the time of the slaying, along with several other several men found in the facility, was picked up for questioning. Early Saturday morning, bloodhounds were brought in from Hope by the Arkansas State Police. They found two trails that led to the highway before the scent was lost. I mean, is the... I mean, it's too much of a coincidence for three murders to happen. Yeah, three sets of murders. In such happen. a small amount of time, you know. Yeah, in a three-month three period. Poor Gonzalez. He gets that late-night call. Yeah, we got the, you know what's it? What's what is he? He's a sergeant well, or he's a no? He's a captain. He's captain. a Texas Ranger. He was a Texas Ranger. You just call him Texas Ranger. No, it's a. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. The next day, on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette, read, "Sex maniac hunted and murders." Sex maniac. Sex maniac. This is this is the this is the thing that I don't understand. Where the hell did that come in? They believe that these were clients. I mean, I guess they're going back to the first set of attacks when the woman was um, sexually assaulted with a barrel of the gun. Mm-hmm. There were no other sexual assaults with the other victims. So they kept believing and saying that this was a sex sex maniac that was on the loose. Even though, yes, they shot and killed women, there's nothing to actually go on and say that this killer was a sex maniac. Well, also sensationalizing a headline itself helps you sell more papers. Right. So, um, here. There's another thing. Uh, the flashlight that they found was sent to Washington, D.C. for further inspection by the FBI. They ran a full-page ad on Thursday morning with the picture of the flashlight that they found on the murder scene. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a description. Here, I'll read it. Have you seen this two-cell flashlight? This is a picture in detail of the flashlight found at the scene of the Starks murders. This is a two-cell, all-metal flashlight. Both ends were painted red. Three rivets hold the head of the flashlight to the body of the light. There are what has been been a limited number of these lights sold in the area. If you own or know someone who owns one of these lights, report it once to the sheriff, W.E. Davis, Miller County Courthouse, Texarkana, Arkansas. You may be the one to aid in solving the phantom slayings. If you own, if you own, if this you own one and yeah. aren't the murderer, yeah. please come to the police. Please, station. we need to weed you out. Like, yeah, I own one. Hey, where is it? I kind of lost it. You're the rest. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> oh, walking into a trap, you know. Yep. <laughs> so I wonder why the, he dropped a flashlight. Because he obviously had this murder planned out. Which means he dropped a flashlight because he was startled in some fashion. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if he was startled because of the, the gunshot. The neighbor shooting his rifle in the air. Or that he was trying to get to the woman as quickly as possible to kill her. And she was tougher than he expected because he's running That's it. Yeah. upstairs, downstairs. Hemorrhaging. Yeah, hemorrhaging blood. I mean, you try to catch up with her and she's moving like like she's in the damn Olympics, which you and I would be doing the same thing too. <laughs> Jumping over hurdles and shit, breaking a world record and getting the fuck up out of there. So that's why probably he or she, whoever the killer is, no. left. Yes, I know there's an element to this. I mean, yeah, any, yeah, no. any 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 kill, any unsolved yeah, yeah, yeah. any unsolved killer. I thought I knew where this was going. <laughs> any unsolved serial killer, serial slaves, you have to bring up the possibility of there being a, be a woman. 
For real though, is, how many women serial killers are there in the history of serial killers? You know more about this than anyone I know knows. It can't well, be that it, many. It's not that many, but it, it's more than you think. I mean, the one you probably bring up is Eileen Mornos, the the monster from... Um, oh, the movie? The movie, yeah. You probably think of her. A um, couple other in the uh, uh, United United States, uh, quite a few across the world. So Just like when you think serial killers, it's always a guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the majority of serial killings that take place are, taking, are done by uh, white males. But occasionally, mm-hmm. there could be women, could be uh, Hispanic, could be black. Could DC be snipers. DC snipers um, were were black. I mean, Warnos was white, and she was different because she killed like a man. But we'll get to I mean, Warnos. Killed like a man, huh? Yes, yeah, she killed like a man. Like women. It, they, it's a delicate touch. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a paring knife instead yeah, of a. It's women like they see. kill. It's it's it, it's been studied by the FBI and other uh, crime forces. They kill sure. like black widow type monetary gain or like a passion gain. Ali Warnos killed like to kill to kill. Yeah. I mean, she gave her reasons that she was raped. She was always raped by all these men. She was a sex worker. But her M.O. and the way she did things, like she just killed to kill. So, and it's rare for a woman. Don't forget about Uma Thurman, too. <laughs> that was for revenge. <laughs> hey, man, it depends on who you ask. Uh, she took down a lot of people. I mean, yeah, she took down a crazy 88. Poor <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams wasn't in that movie. Mm, wasn't she? No, that was Vivica Fox. Vivica Fox. <laughs> Killed her right in front of her daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Female murderers and she murdered a lot of people. She was she was the hero of the story. <laughs> Some might say. Yeah. yeah. All right, back to back to these set of murders. <laughs> these real set of murders. Okay, so because of this, a lot of rumors start being spread because they haven't caught the serial killer. Uh, on May 19th, a rumor had been spread that uh, the serial that the killer had been caught. Some of them believe that he's being held in Bowie, Bowie County Jailhouse, surrounded by Texas Rangers with submachine guns on their knees. Others believe he had flown to an out-of-town jail. The Gazette and new Texarkana news officers were drowned with phone calls, both local and long distance, inquiring about the apprehension of the killer. Newspaper will tell the public if the killer was caught read one of the sublines in the May 19th edition of the Texarkana Gazette. Sheriff Paisley declared that innocent people will be accused of being a phantom and asked residents to show more consideration for the federal citizens. Presley stated, these rumors positively are not true. We can understand why people believe them. All of us here are tense and are hopeful that at any hour, Officers will announce they have the killer in custody. The people must not become so anxious to rid themselves of the killer. However, they, that they brand innocent persons as a murderer and believe unfounded stories. The investigating officers have announced that when and if the killer is apprehended or killed, the public will be given the full story throughout the newspapers. We have reaffirmed this statement. 
Newspapers are kept posted on developments in the investigation and they will announce all news immediately. We believe that the people have a right to know if the killer is caught or killed and we pledge ourselves to let the public have this information. So, I'm looking at the I'm looking at photos from that from that uh, mm -hmm. the investigators and the sheriff and stuff from that time. Yeah. So this dude came in and out in one year, 1946, huh? Yeah, one year. Never, in a matter of like eight, <laughs> nine days, from February 22nd to, no, I'm sorry, no, it's a couple of months. Yeah, it was March. February 22nd to May 3rd. Mm -hmm. I thought that said March 3rd. Yeah, so like two and a half months. Yes. Never apprehended. Okay. Uh, yes, that's exactly what the... Taking a quick break? Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back right after this. And we're back! <laughs> Hello. Can <laughs> take a quick break? One of our uh, yeah. podcasters fell off? Yeah, yeah. He died on the factory. He, <laughs> <laughs> he got him. But <laughs> He's a nurse, so we don't want to keep him from his profession. Yes, yes. The Phantom could be striking at any time, at any moment. He has to be ready to save lives. So, uh, <laughs> um, back, to the, back to the story. Um, pretty much... How the town started reacting. After the first double murder, some parents warned their children about being out late. The second double murder shocked the city and curfews were set for businesses. The height of the town's hysteria snowballed after the murder of Virgil Starks. The Texarkana Gazette stated on Sunday, May 5th, that the killer might strike again at any moment, in any place, and at anyone. Before, it was no normal to leave your house unlocked. But soon, residents started locking doors, pulling down shades, blocking windows, and arming themselves with guns. Some people would nail sheets over the windows or nail the windows down. Some used screen door braces as window guards. The next day after Stark's death, several residents brought firearms and locks. Stores sold out of locks, guns, ammunition, and window shades and Venetian blinds. Others, other items that sold well included window slash locks, screen door hooks, night latches, and other protective devices. I don't know what Venetian blinds are. Yeah. But it's just funny like like you go down to the you know, to the local hardware store, you're like, I need something to block my windows. Well let let us show you the options. Ooh, that looks nice. Blind. Venetian like if we're gonna be protecting I ourselves, let's know let's, what a Venetian blind. Let's are. do it in style. That's what I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> it's, like it's like Italian cashmere or something. Yes. Venetian blind. I do not know what Venetian blinds. Look at my windows. Thing. Do I have well, any you blinds? you live on a multi floor. You're up on a top floor. You live in a multi floor, so you're not worried about uh, people looking into your windows. It's like it, it's weird as I'm sitting here and I'm looking out of your window. Um, he has no he has no blinds. I'm look, I'm googling it right now. She has no blinds on his windows, ladies and gentlemen. And that is weird to me. Like, I, my room's on the second floor, and I have blinds that cover my windows. I don't want people looking into my windows. Nah, man, like, just let the sun shine in, brother. No, no, let the sun shine out. <laughs> oh, so these are just blinds. Why do they yes. call Venetian blinds? It's just a type, it's a type of window covering. <laughs> no, I mean, like, when you say blinds, it's the only blinds I can think of. <laughs> Why are they Venetian? <laughs> yeah, and like even with Vir the Virgil Starks murder, he had no blinds on his windows. That's fucking scary to me, especially at night. 
You can't see outside, but people outside. I mean, dude, if I lived on a farmhouse, yes, I'd have fucking blinds. (laughs) Doesn't mean someone can't climb up and then look at you sleeping. (laughs) Nick, you sound like you're speaking from experience. (laughs) Springfield Jack? (laughs) Springfield Jack, the mad gas from the two future episodes of this podcast? I climbed up windows. (laughs) Nice plugging into your next. Future episodes. Yeah, <laughs> climbing a window. I have blinds. I have blinds, some sort of cover. I don't care. I have to put newspaper on my damn windows. No one's looking what at you. Live in a crack house. Damn right. <laughs> like, newspaper. It's like shit. If I couldn't afford blinds, I, something had to cover those windows. I do not want people looking at my windows. That's how Virgil got shot and killed. But back to the story. <laughs> During that weekend, <laughs> Texarkana residents kept the police busy by flooding the station with reports of problems. While officers stated nearly all the alarms were a result of excitement, wild imaginations, and even hysteria. Farmhouses and neighborhoods blared with lights. Several businesses, including cafes, theaters, and nightclubs, lost many customers. One business reported a 20% drop. The evenings were hopping, but the streets were practically deserted with dawn approaches. The city became a virtual ghost town. Because of the drop in sales, liquor stores closed at 9.30 and posted a statement in the paper saying, We fully understand the state of mind in which Texarkana is now gripped. where We are selling no liquor to persons who have already been drinking. We do not wish to add further to the troubles of the police. Any person who drinks whiskey at this time to get drunk and wander the streets of Texarkana is further complicating the work of the police and placing themselves in grave danger of being shot by people whose nerves are all edge from the recent murders. Yeah, I'd be I'd be done. Yeah. I'd be fucked. Yep. I'd be arrested or shot. Yep. <laughs> Get that phone call. Yeah, we shot your friend. Yeah. Fuck. What did he do? What Drink he, bourbon? He drank too much bourbon. <laughs> On Bourbon Street. <laughs> Well, it is Bourbon Street. I mean, (laughs) many citizens were so jittery and armed with guns. Texarkana was a very dangerous place. Officers had to turn their sirens on when they drove up, get out, and stand with their headlights and announce themselves to keep from being shot by nervous homeowners. In order to go to someone's house, you had to call in advance and let them know to expect you. A fearful tavern uh, proprietor had shot a customer in the foot who was searching for beer. <laughs> Poor guy. Hey, that's how Brett Kavanaugh got his lip. No. <laughs> I like beer. I like a lot of beer. Oh, damn I drink beer. beer. I drank beer. I drank beer. I'm sorry, I'm blacked out for a second. <laughs> On the front page of the Texarkana Gazette, on Monday, May 6th, a headline stated that the entire area was fighting jitters. Captain Gonzalez did not make anything better. He fueled the hysteria when he announced on the radio Tuesday evening that Texarkana should oil up their guns and see if they're loaded. Put them out of reach of children. Do not use them unless it's necessary. If you believe it is, do not hesitate. When asked what advice he would give to quiet the town's fears, he responded, I tell them to check the locks and bolts on their doors and get a double-barrel shotgun to take care of any intruders who try to get in. And another part of the story came from the killer being called the Phantom. 
has made it believe that he disappeared in and out of your home. Mm-hmm. Or on the streets. <sighs> what are your thoughts on Farmer's This town's been. I mean, obviously, there's a town on edge. Um, there's definitely someone out there doing harm to innocent people. There's no alibi yet. There's nothing really linking the murders. It seems pretty random. You mean motive, not alibi. Or that's yet. Yeah, motive. motive. Yeah. And those are the hardest type of murders to investigate for right. police because there's no rhyme or reason. It's just randomized, you know? Mm-hmm. Where if they can pick up on a... It's like, it reminds me of like the Zodiac murders. Yeah. There's yeah. really yeah. no rhyme or reason. So it was it like this one. No one was ever caught. Mm-hmm. They had suspicions, but... Right. They can never nail it to anybody. Right. Yeah, especially like when we live in a time right now where you have the internet and stuff. And people are more available, and there's a lot more lights. And like, I, I can't imagine living in, in even if I lived in a small town, keeping my doors unlocked, right? Um, keeping the windows open and no sort of protection. Um, but they're living in a time where that was a norm. And to have that disrupted and be on jittery, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, can I, you imagine living in a time of like Jack the Ripper? I mean, yes. seriously, <laughs> like a time before electricity? No, I can't. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna murder you by candlelight. <laughs> I'm gonna stab you in the bum. I am, I am, I am. Like, that shit's terrifying. Jack the Ripper coming 2020. <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't done one on that yet. Uh, he's, like it's too... the, he's like the most famous serial killer. I mean, yeah, he is the most famous serial killer. Plus, it's a lot of info. And plus, yeah. there is a, a possible tie-in to Chicago. You know that. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that at the end of the year. Um, Jack the Ripper, there, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of people have been researching that guy. For a long period of time, these people made their lives and their livelihood of research and trying to get to that guy. He he'll be there. There are other serial killers and other weird shit on this world. We'll get to Jack the Ripper. <laughs> There's other cases I find that are more interesting, like this one. I find a little bit more interesting, but uh, yeah, living in that time, terrifying, terrifying, because you don't know what's what's coming, and then you have the town on edge. And everyone on edge, and and they're thinking that you possibly could be the killer. Talking about how if you come up to someone's house, you yeah. gotta call them ahead, like yeah, it's tell you know getting people out of their mm-hmm. normal day to day rhythms and stuff, and just turning neighbors against each other. And yeah, stuff. Like, yeah, that's not a good. That's not a good place. Yeah, not a good place to be. Exactly. I mean, people gotta work. Kids gotta go to school. Yeah, and. Not even in the back of their mind, in front of their mind, they're thinking about this, you know? Yeah, and, it, and you have business closing, closings, especially when it gets dusk. And people who work at night, they can't make livelihoods mm-hmm. because, of, because of this killer. And that, that's another thing that's not brought up. Like, oh, the streets were deserted. It was like, people work at night. There's people who work at night and their livelihoods are being lost and they can't make rent or put food on the table because of this goddamn killer during that time. So... And even 
even the surrounding towns are going nuts. As news announcements spread and the suspects were searched in surrounding counties, the fear crossed over to many cities, including Hope, Lifkin, Magnolia, even going as far as Oklahoma City. Jeez. Residents in other cities were also stocking up with guns and even access. Because they want to take your ass back to the 1910s. Fucking 1910s. It's like... Uh, it's just, it's just medieval. I was going to say, that's like William. Yeah, William Wallace. Yeah, William Wallace time. William the Conqueror. Every three weeks when there were no murders, the town began, fear began to drop little by little. The hysteria lasted throughout the summer and eventually faded three months later. Texas Rangers quietly left Texarkana little by little throughout October. This was not announced to keep the Phantom from attempting another attack. So he didn't catch him. And that was it? There was no more murders? There was no more murders after that. And it was they tried to they still search for the identity of the Phantom. Today, I mean, here Here's some of the things that people were trying to do to catch the Phantom during that time. Though most of the town was in fear of the Phantom, some kids continued continue to park in lonely roads. Some of them hoped to apprehend the invasive slayer. One night, Officer Tillman Johnson was patrolling a lonely road with Arkansas State Trooper Charlie Boyd when he came up to a parked car. Johnson got out while Boyd stayed behind. Johnson walked up to the car and noticed a couple. He said, I'm Tillman Johnson with the Miller County Sheriff's Department. Aren't you scared to be parked in here at night? The girl replied, You're the one who ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are. And she revealed that she had been pointing a 25 caliber pistol at him the whole time. She was packing. She was packing and ready to go. Damn. <laughs> On Friday night, May 10th, Texarkana, Texas City police officers chased a car for three miles that had been following the city bus. The police shot out the tires and arrested a high school athlete named C.J. Lordell Jr. When officers questioned the team at the station, he explained that he did not know they were officers because they were driving unmarked cars. He said he'd been following the bus because he was suspicious of the occupant who got door from a private car. On Sunday, May 12th, Captain Gonzalez gave a warning to teenage sleuths in the Gazette saying, It's a good way to get killed. Even Gonzalez tried to bait the Phantom by recruiting teenagers, some of which were the daughters and sons of Texas Rangers, as decoys in parked cars while officers waited nearby. Officers, too, volunteered as decoys, some with real partners, others with mannequins. After the murders of Booker and Martin, some officers hid in trees at Spring, Spring Lake Park. Despite all efforts, the Phantom never took the bait. Hmm. Yeah. So, who was the Phantom Killer? The only description that we have is from the first attacks. None of the other two attacks had lived. So all we have is the statement from Jimmy Hollis and Mary Laurie. They were the only victims that give a description of the attackers. They described him as being six feet tall with a white mask over his face with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. Throughout Hollis believed he was a young, dark, tan, white man under 30 years old, Larry believed he was a light-skinned African-American. The only other victim was Katie Starks, but she never saw the assailant. Since Holland and Larry were the only survivors to give a description, it can't be known the killer wore a mask during the other attacks. 
So, sorry, I get distracted by the news, of course, yeah. as we're talking about a serial killer. They were talking about some shooting that happened in Indiana oh. at Walmart. Oh, boy. Anyway, sorry, not to get so, distracted. Yeah, uh, what was the modus operandi of this killer? Uh, he established the killer attacked young couples in lonely or private areas just outside the city limits with a 32 caliber pistol. 32 caliber bullets. Even though the caliber used in Stark murders was 22, it's first believed by Jordy Lawman that it was used by the Phantom. He always attacked on the weekends, usually three weeks apart, and always late at night. Captain Gonzalez tried to give a description, or profile, give a profile, excuse me, of this killer. He stated that it was a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities, and that his efforts were both clever and baffling. He also stated the man he was hunting was a cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. After the murder of Virgil Starr, the majority of 47 officers unofficially believed the killer's motives were that of sex mania. One of the officers stated, I believe that, they, that this is a sex pervert. The headline of May 5, 1946 edition of Texas Arcade is that again read, Sex Maniac Hunted in Murders. At the murder scene of Virgil Starks, Bowie County Sheriff William Bill Presley stated, The killer is the luckiest person I've known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. Officer said the killer was apparently a maniac who had been an expert with a gun. Victim and survivor Jimmy Hollis said, I know he's crazy. The crazy things he said make me feel that his mind was warped. Dr. Anthony Lapaga, a Palia, a psychologist at the Federal Correction Institution in Texarkana, believed the killer was planning to continue making unexpected attacks such as that of Virgil Starks on the outskirts of town. He also believes the same person committed the murder, murders of Virgil Starks, Betty Jo Booker, Paul Martin, Polly Ann Moore, and Richard Griffin. He also believed the killer was between the ages of middle 30s to 50 years old. He said the killer was apparently motivated by a strong sex drive and it was a sadist. He said the person would commit such crimes is intelligent, clever, shrewd, and often not apprehended. According to the Pontius theories, the killer knew at all times what was being done in the investigation and knew that the lonesome roads had been patrolled, which is why he chose the house on a farmland. He pointed out that his statements were summarized theories that were based on a large number of people that committed similar crimes. He said in many crimes, the killer is never apprehended and in some instances would divert attention to other distant communities where it's believed the killers are committed by a different individual or else he will or overcome the desire to kill and assault women. The poly also stated that the murder is probably not a Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde and that he could be leading a low, normal life appearing to be a good citizen. He said he's probably not a veteran because if man served in our forces for even a year, the medical tendencies will be apparent. I mean, I don't, not knowing the, uh, the full details of, of the, of the, the, the crimes, uh, mm -hmm. committed here. One, it seems like they're giving him a little bit too much credit. Right. Two, if he did have that much information about, like, where the police were going to be and stuff, mm -hmm. was he an insider or did he know someone on the inside of the police department? Because being that good with, like, cleaning up after yourself, mm -hmm. 
yeah, okay, it could, it's possible. Right. But human, everybody makes mistakes, and you slip up just a little bit, and you get caught, right? Right. So did he know someone in the police department? Was he a former police? Not likely. I think it's just a killer that was just very lucky. Okay, so you could yeah. say lucky, but like to just say like this guy's a, you know, mastermind criminal. Yeah. I think they just playing it up that it was a mastermind. Um, I don't think that this killer is a any sort of mastermind. I think he's smart. He or she. And he's smart. That at least has some rudimentary police work knows a little bit about police work well typically uh, if um <laughs> my, cats, my cat wants to be on the podcast just, no no felines allowed <laughs> time I'm murdered kitty yeah Get down. Um, I mean I don't know I just think like someone that smart is going to be a high functioning person right. you know I don't know. Right. It, it seems to me like it'd be. I guess, I guess that's another thought is that it would have to be someone who was not from the area. Right. Yeah, that's, that was a lot of what a lot of investigators and even sleuths after the fact and pointed out. They don't think this killer was from Texarkana at all. Yeah. Um, I tend to lean that way a little bit, um, especially since the Virgil Starks murders was outside Texarkana. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it might be from a different uh, different town. Um, now, in terms of prime suspects, one name keeps coming up in terms of prime suspects in these murders who could have been the Phantom. So let's go talk about the prime suspect in the case. Max Taggett, a 33-year-old Arkansas State Police officer rookie at the time of the murders, realized that a car had been stolen on the night of the murders on the nights of the murders and a previously stolen car was found abandoned on Friday June 28th 1946 Tackett found a car that reported stolen in a parking lot he staked out the car until someone came back for it he arrested a 21 year old woman she said she had just married her husband in Shreveport Louisiana but he was currently in Atlanta Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Homer Carter, chief of police in Atlanta, told Tackett that a man had tried selling a stolen car to one of his citizens. Tackett asked the citizen if he could recognize the suspect, but the man said he would not. Tackett noticed that the citizen had a distinct look, which included a cowboy hat and boots. Tackett told the citizens, you wouldn't recognize him, but he would recognize you. Maxson asked the citizen if he could be willing to walk with him into several public places. Tackett had the idea that the suspect would not want to see the citizen and would try to avoid him. On, set, on a Saturday in July, Tackett walked into the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station on Front, Front Street near Union Station with the citizen. Tackett saw a man run out of the back of the building. He chased after him and caught him on the fire escape. The man's name was Joel Sweeney. He would not talk, but his wife Peggy confessed in great detail that he was the phantom killer and he killed Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin. By law, in 1946, Peggy could not be made to testify against her husband 
and because she was considered an unreliable witness, Yuo was not arrested for murder. Instead, only circumstantial evidence. With only social, circumstantial evidence, Sweeney was sent back to prison for being an habitual car thief. Who did he confess this to? She confessed. Or she, okay. His wife, Peggy, confessed that her husband, Yuo Sweeney, was the phantom killer. Oh. Here's some of the circumstantial evidence that was brought up when pitting this to Yule Sweeney. The car Peggy Sweeney was arrested in, arrested for was the one reported stolen on the night of the Griffin Moore murders. When Tacky, Tackett excuse me, caught Yule Sweeney on the firewall, Sweeney says, please don't shoot me. Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. Sweeney then replied, Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. When Yule was in the police car, he asked Tilman Johnson, Mr. Johnson, what do you think that they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? Johnson responded with, you won't get much, maybe five or ten years. They don't give the electric chair for stealing cars. Sweeney then said, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. Implying what? He thinks, they think, they want him for something else. Okay. When a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she explained, she exclaimed, how did they find, find it out? Officers took, Peggy took officers to a spot near Paul Martin's car was found. She said she went into the woods there. The officers found woman's heel prints in that area. Peggy's family and Yule's brother-in-law believed that Yule was the phantom. Police found a khaki work shirt in the suspect's room with a, with a laundry mark of the word Stark, which was read under a black light. In the front pocket of the work shirt, Stag was found, which matched samples found in Virgil Stark's welding shop. Yule Sweeney owned a 32 Colt automatic that previously sold it but had previously sold it in a crap game. While being accused of murder, Sweeney remained silent instead of pleading his innocence. Peggy Sweeney confessed to her husband's actions, revealing, <coughs> excuse me, revealing very detailed information, including things officers already knew and things they did not. Oh. Now there are complications with your naming Sweeney. Those are circumstances and evidence naming Sweeney. There are things that contradict him being the Phantom. Yule's fingerprints did not match any of the latent prints in a Booker Martin's crime scene. Peggy Sweeney recounted her confession. The Texas Rangers and Sheriff Bill Presley were not convinced that Sweeney was a Phantom. Sweeney denied being the Phantom and never made a confession. Officers including Bowie County Sheriff Presley, Miller County Sheriff Davis, Texas City's Chief of Police Reynolds, their officers in both state police department worked day and night for six months trying to validate Peggy Sweeney's story of their whereabouts. They deduced that Peggy was not truly telling the truth and that on the night of the murder of Booker and Martin, the couple was sleeping in a car in a bridge under San Antonio. Unknown is either is either a sick prank or a true confection. An anonymous woman contacted family members of the victims. One in 1999, another in 2000, apologized for what her father had done. Yule Sweeney never had a daughter. 
<laughs> okay. So he keeps pointing back to Yule Sweeney. There is circumstantial evidence that points to Yule Sweeney, but nothing concrete. Nothing concrete. And I mean, they can't match the fingerprints. Either. Yeah, they can't match the fingerprints of the Booker Martin case, the Lane prints. Uh, Sweeney denied being the Phantom. Even he would deny being a Phantom too. The Texas Rangers and Sheriff Presley did believe he was Phantom, but they could be wrong. Uh, his wife Peggy recanted their confession, but you could people do that all the time and still sure. guilty. So sure, I mean. Chasing after some like weird fame or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's circumstantial, but nothing concrete <sighs> pointing to it. So, but they are the circumstantial evidence, evidence is still pretty strong. So, there were a couple other suspects. Here, I'll run through them real quick. Okay. Uh, on November 5th, 1948, ATO freshman Henry Booker Doobie Tennyson from the University of Arkansas was found dead in his bed in his bed in his home at Fayetteville, Arkansas. Washington County Sheriff Bruce Cedars discovered that Tennyson had purchased cyanide of mercury on November 3rd, explaining that he was going to use it for rat poisoning. A note was found reading, the opening of my box will be found in the fellow, a fellow lot following few lines. In a tube of papers file, rose on colors and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, inside is a sheet you will learn. Two bees means a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. A note was found inside a BB fountain pen. Poison was found on the cap. The note inside pen continuous contained clues to combination of a lockbox. Not in the mood for playing games, the police forced the lockbox lock open. <laughs> Inside was a viewmaster with several rolls of film from Mexico and a stack of papers. Other stack of papers was a note confessing to the Texarkana killings. The note read, To whom this may concern, this is the last word to you fine people, and you are fine. I want to thank you for all the trouble you have gone through to send me to college and bring me up. You have been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee, Mrs. McGee, the owner of the house he was rooming in, for letting me stay with her during my college career, and to Bella Joe, Mrs. McGee's 12-year-old daughter, for putting up with me the way she did. She had to know, had she had to, I know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. She was, If she was older, I would have married her, asked her to marry me, but it would be impossible. Why'd I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you you would too. Yes, I did kill Benny Joe Booker and Paul Martin in a city park that night and killed Mr. Stark and tried to get Mrs. Stark. You would you would have guessed it, but I did it when Mother was either out or asleep and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I dismembered them and discarded them in different places. When I found which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Greg, Tennyson's older brother, and tell him that I hope that his child is a boy and it will help him in his work. Everything can go wherever you think it will do best, except for the viewfinder, which will go to Bella Joe. 
please take my bank roll and give it to Danny. I think it should go to him and tell him I don't want the car now. Well, goodbye, everyone. See you sometime if I make the grade, which would be hard for me to make. Sounds like a confession letter to me. Yeah, but there's no evidence pointing to the fact that he did commit these murders. Um, and his whereabouts are different. Or he's in a different place. They said um, here they went back to the sheriff. W.E. Davis and uh, Sheriff Bill Bradley were surprised by the news when they heard the heard the letter. They said the youth had never been a suspect in the killings and that a detailed investigation would be made. Max Taggett left El Dorado, Arkansas to investigate the incident in Fairville. Texas Ranger Stuart Stanley was sent to investigate the suicide by Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Fingerprints were taken from Tellison to see if any would match could be matched with a still classified prints taken from the scene of the Booker Martin murders. Mrs. Bessie Brown, Booker's mother, visited his mother to offer sympathy and told her they thought the Tennyson had nothing to do with her daughter's death. His uh, fingerprints didn't match those on the Booker Martin crime scene. They also found his rifle and he did uh, See ballistic tests in Little Rock, Arkansas, revealed the cartridge cases of the test bullet fired from Tennyson's rifle would have access had nothing were nothing like the cases of bullets found in the Stark home. In 2013, resident duty resident duty claimed that all ballistic testings from this available guns were irrelevant since they were most likely not the guns duly used, especially if the real guns were disassembled and hidden as stated in the notes. That sounds like a good reason to me. Yeah. Why would this man confess to these killings? I don't know. For no, uh, for no reason. Well, his description book, I mean, Tennyson was, he was born in February 12, 1930. He was six feet three, six feet three and weighed 130 30 pounds. He was extremely shy, said my sister. That he has sunny disposition and then does not remember him being a moody person. Also, how many people how many people from rural America were going to university during the nineteen forties? He said he went to university. Yeah, he, he committed suicide. He was eighteen years old, he committed suicide at University of Arkansas. So this leads to the notion of like him the killer, as we were discussing earlier, being really smart. Yeah, but he's also would be sixteen years old. So a 16-year-old... People, yes. people didn't live to be 100 back in 1940. Yeah, but also you have a 60-year-old kid that's committing all these murders and would be high and still living at home and be able to get out in and out of his house, sneak in, get in and out of his house, get to the places he needs to get. I don't imagine he had a car. Chris, here, hold on. Let's see here. I mean, that's a good point. He wasn't taught to how to drive until 1947. <laughs> that's a good point, but... I mean, who knows? I mean, is it stayed in there what his fa family life was like? He said he was a sunny disposition. It doesn't, and his family doesn't remember him being a moody person. He played trombone in the Arkansas High School band with Booker. But they're not... But they were... Oh, he... Did do Booker, but they were not friends. He was very fond of comic books and loved listening to radio plays, especially quiz programs. He used to work as a part-time usher in the Paramount Theater in downtown Texarkana. 
the way I was the average student, he was not interested in student school work. He graduated June 1948. Yeah, I mean, hold on, sorry. Uh-huh. 16 years old. A kid that... I don't know, like someone that's like dealing with depression and commits suicide. Maybe he just broke that just to say that he was a bad person. That he didn't do it, he just broke it. Possible. You're right. His prince doesn't match the first set of Kellogg's. You're right, but like... You're right. And he didn't have a car. You're already putting your family through this tragic t- time. Why include that in there? I don't know. But you're right. Maybe to, to say that like he's a bad person and deserves death. Yeah. Maybe I was thinking. Uh, other people stated it was a German prisoner of war. Quickly on uh, May the 8th, uh, was announced that escaped prison, German prisoner of war, considered a suspect. He was hunted as a matter of routine, described as a stocky 24-year-old, 187-pound, with brown hair and blue eyes. POW stole a car from Mount Ia, Arkansas, attempted by ammunition in several several eastern Oklahoma towns. I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one. Um... Real German POW. I mean, this is right after the war. Real German POW. We escape. I don't think you have time to kill uh, kids on a backyard unless you were trying to steal their cars, which your cars weren't were stolen. Your main guess is probably get to the Guava Coast to see if you can get the hell out of there, try to pay somebody off, get you out of there. I don't think it's a German prisoner of war. Um, there was a, uh, a Loka, a Toka. Arizona suspect on Friday, May 10th in Toka, Oklahoma. A man walked up to a woman's house and opened her screen door. He asked Mrs. Harmon if he could have some turpentine, food, and money. Mrs. Harmon told the man she had very little turpentine and had no money or food. The man grabbed... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, turpentine. Uh, Big back then. (laughs) The man then grabbed Mrs. Harmon by the hair and dragged her out onto the porch. He told her that night that as well he killed her since he already killed three or four people. He was going to rape her. He then heard a noise horse gallop towards them and told her, there comes a man on a horse. If you report this to officers, I'll come back and kill you. After the man ran off, the woman took her child to her neighbor's house, further up the street, and reported to the police. Soon after her report, a search for the man included 20 officers and 160 residents. She described the man as about a 5'9", 5'10", white man, about 30 to 40 years old, 150 to 155 pounds, with dark hair, it was bad need of a shave. He carried an open five-inch bladed pocket knife. It was wearing gloves, a faded and worn blue jeans with khakis, and an old, dirty, dark-colored floppy hat. Police arrested the suspect closely matching the description that Sunday. The suspect had gloves that Mrs. Harmon identifies the same gloves as an attacker. The man also wore wearing blue khaki, blue clothes and khakis. No really evidence pointing to the fact that other than he said he killed three or four people. Doesn't else. mean he's this, doesn't mean this he's, guy, right? Doesn't mean he's a cat. There was also, lastly, a Los Angeles coma victim. Um, on Thursday, May 23rd, 1946, a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force B-24 machine gunner by the name of Ralph B. Bauman told Los Angeles police he thought he had been the Phantom. 
I've been in a coma running from something, maybe murder. I want to clear it up. If I did kill five people in Texarkana, I want to settle down and I want to settle down and be a stuntman in Hollywood. I'd be happiest when I'm living in danger. Previously, he had gone to the Los Angeles Examiner and told a reporter, I want to sell you some murder information. I know who and where the Texarkana killer is. Give me $5 and let me have an hour start and I'll put information in a sealed envelope. Reporter called police after reading after reading on a certain day in March. I was in the Texarkana Theater watching a news picture of war when the person in the party started acting wise and said overacting. He got me, he got, he kind of got to me. I followed him home, killed him within a period of three days. Really, no evidence pointed that he was anywhere near Texarkana. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean. You can keep going down the list of uh, people claiming to be it, but at some point it gets kind of absurd. Why would someone in California be the suspect? Yeah. Right. If he's got no connection to Texarkana whatsoever. Right. I mean... Mm. And also the last one, there's the last one, they hypnotized the suspect. The police arrested a black man in his, in his 30s whose tire tracks were found on the other side of the road for the Martin courts where the Martin, Martin martyrs. After he failed a polygraph exam... Officers decided to have him hypnotized. The man that was taken to a psychiatrist and a hypnotist named Travis Elliott. Elliott talked to the man in a private session for a while. Sheriff Presley asked Elliott if the man could be hypnotized. Yes, but you have the wrong man. He has no criminal tendencies. Blind Elliott. Ain't no black man committing serial murder in Texarkana. No. <laughs> it's not happening. The dude they, they, probably stick out like a sore thumb anyways. Exactly. It's just the sheriff's and the sheriff's department being uh, desperate. It's just being desperate at this point in time. Um, they can't find any, any killer. They can't find the killler. Oh, there's this tire tracks that match this. These tire tracks are on the other side of the area where we found the, the murder victims. Okay. Sure. I mean, as an investigator, you have to do due diligence and follow any lead, but that seems ridiculous to me. He yeah. probably fucking failed a polygraph test because he was so nervous that he was going to get framed for a murder. Probably, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Okay, let's wrap this up and we'll get our, our theories lastly. Um, it's an interesting note. On Monday, July 9th, 1956, a worker tearing down the Spring Lake Park School found men's clothing with dark red stains in the attic underneath a table scarf in the same, with the same stains. The school was located across the railroad tracks near the scene where Martin's car was found. The clothing, clothing was sent to the state laboratory in Austin, Texas by Texas City Police to determine the stains were human blood. The clothing had been there for a long time because they were deteriorating. T- the clothing consisted of white linen trousers and a white linen shirt and undershirt. Before the test results came in, Officers were cautious in linking the clothing to certain particular murders in the area. Officers received a written report claiming that the stains were blood, but failed to give a blood type. Officers were concerned, were concerned and made a long distance call to the Bureau of Investigations of the State Department of Public Safety and were told they had made a mistake and the letter shows that the stains were not blood. The stains turned out to be paint stains. The blood-stained clothes were speculated to be hidden by the phantom, which rumors still persist, but no, they were um, in this town, it is tradition every October near Halloween that uh, a movie called The Town of Dreaded Sundown, which is loosely based on this case, is shown in the public park. In a public park, a movie is in the park. 
near Spring Lake Park or into Southwest Center if it's raining. It's a free event sponsored by the Texarkana, Texas Department of Parks and Recreation. It has been showing the movie The Fifty Tradition about since 2003, and a lot of people end up showing up to this film. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they did do a movie called The Town is Dreaded Sundown. It was made in 1976. Mm-hmm. And they also sort of made a remake sequel, meta sequel. Um, in 2014, called it Saint, called the town and dreaded sundown. Uh, it was loosely based on the case. It was the movie was taking it as it's like a recreation, moment by moment of of these murders and the chase for these murders. Um, this really like the movie kind of has people call it like a predecessor to the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, the reenactments and voiceover. Type, uh, type for this film. It's, it's a pretty good film. Um, it's a little scary. Even the remake, even though it's nothing like the original movie, the remake meta-sequel, I guess you could call it like a meta-sequel, um, it's not that bad either, um, which was shooting 2014. It's uh, crazy. In 2014, there was, I mean, even so many decades later, there was still some interest in the story. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty... Uh, Just a pretty famous unsolved murders, like along with the Zodiac killings and the uh, Axeman murders and other notorious murders in this uh, unsolved murders in this country, mm-hmm. uh, especially unsolved serial killings. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this story. Sure. Uh, I'm going to like who, if you had a, of the choice of suspects I gave you or. Oh, hearing from what you hear in this case, who do you think is the phantom killer? I don't think it's any one of them, but if I had to choose, it would be the guy who admitted to it in his you suicide note. Yeah. Oh, the suicide note? The suicide note. Uh, Timison? Yeah. I know, I know you're saying he's 16 and it's, it would be hard for him to do it, but... Yeah. I mean, just like, that's what I'm saying, like, this is the 1950s, dude, like... 40s. <clears throat> 1940s. If you're going to commit suicide, that is a shameful anti-christian act right. so you're bringing you're gonna bring even more sorrow to your family by saying you murdered a bunch of people i mean he could be just making it up i mean i don't think a no, 60 year old is, like, yeah if you, if you commit if you that bad and your mind is that far gone yeah you're gonna make something up to make it sound like you're a terrible person him saying that i committed these murders as I'm committing suicide, so people will mourn for him because he thinks he's going to be a lot of pain. So he recognizes there's going to be a lot. Him not being there and committing suicide is going to is is going to put a lot of pain on his family. So I'm going to say I committed these murders to make it the people think that I'm the bad guy and maybe lessen up that pain because he's already in this dark place. Yeah, I, there's no evidence that links him to these murders. He knew one of the victims because he played. Do of, excuse me, one of the victims because they played it in the same band that they played it. Mm-hmm. But does it make That's it. How's he getting around? He didn't learn how to drive until a year later. How the hell is he going to get around to kill all those people? He's going to go over, he's going to walk 10, 12, 20, 30 miles and go kill Virgil, Virgil Starks and shoot his wife. He's going to stake out um, Lover's Lane in different parts of the city walking Come on! I mean, man. he said it, but it didn't like happen night after night. It was over three months. 
So, but he still has to walk from his house. <laughs> it just doesn't make just any saying. sense. <laughs> no, for sure. But if I, again, I don't think it's any one of them, but if I had to pick one, I would pick him. Um, okay. Well, I think it's your swing. <laughs> it's your swing. I mean, he gets... Going by the evidence. Going by, by the evidence and pretty much, the, even though it's circumstantial, you don't have that many um, uh, hard evidence on your Sweeney. It's you. It's him. The it, 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 first thing he comes out of his mouth when he gets arrested, you want me for more than just stealing cars? Uh, you got something to say? Um, he's found with a khaki shirt with the word Stark that read under a black light. His wife didn't say it. He's the killer, even though she went back on it, because she probably realized he wasn't going to jail for the murders. Um, so yeah, just kidding. Yeah, just kidding. Please don't kill me. <laughs> so yeah, it, all the evidence points towards him. All the evidence points towards one killer. All the evidence points towards Yul Swade. I think it's Yul Swade. He just don't have anything hard and concrete on it. He did go to jail for a significant amount of time, and he got out. He was a really old man, but still. What did he go to jail for? Car, perpetual car thief. Okay. So he kept him in jail for a very long period of time. But I think he killed. He was a phantom kill. I mean, yeah, you're right. There's there's uh, more evidence for him than anybody else um, uh, that you named off. Yeah. I don't know. Just something about that guy's confession was just strange to me. The circumstances. I, I just think he was in a dark place. I think the kid was in a dark place and wanted to make it less, less amount of hurt on his family. So he just came up with whatever was the top of his head. It's two years after the murders. Okay. Must I'll just say I'll just say I did this. The lesson of blame. He had nothing to do with them. It's there's no evidence to point that it was him. Yeah. At it's, all. One day we'll know for sure, maybe. Or we won't. If it's still being investigated, right? Yes. Or we won't. You're right. It will just be chalked up to uh, legend. Unsolved mystery. Unsolved mystery here on the weekend. Weird. But uh, <laughs> uh, I thank y'all for listening to our story. And I thank Uncle for being on. Of course. Um, quick announcements. Uh, yeah, it's October. It's one year of weekend weird. So we're going to have more stories just like this. Uh, we're going to have... Uh, Local Chicago haunts and legends. Hopefully, another story of another serial killer, or unsolved serial killer. Then remember, uh, at the end of the month for a one-year anniversary, uh, we will be doing a live ghost hunt. Well, it won't be live when you hear it, but <laughs> at the time, it will be a live ghost hunt um, for for Halloween. Um, in one year, we get weird. Uh, we're going to a very famous place uh, somewhere in the Midwest. I'm not going to tell you what. It is until we debut it, but it'll be a ghost hunt live for us, recorded for you <laughs> on on a weekend weird. Uh, they will do a little history of the place and try to see if we can uh, speak to the beyond. If not, um, also um, later on this for the rest of the year, we're having stories of um, other supernaturals, uh, cults. Uh, serial killers uh, for the rest for the rest of the year and next year we'll have more of the same and a special couple of special events happening throughout next year. Also, I want to give a small recommendation. Now, if you're in the movie, if you're going to see a movie 
anytime in the next couple of weeks um, if this is playing at your movie theater. I would recommend that you see a movie, a documentary called Love Yoda. It's a documentary on the life of a famous comedian, Yoda Ratner, one of the original uh, Not Ready for Prime Time players. It's a very great documentary um, on Yoda Ratner um, and her life, her early life, her starting with uh, Second City up in Canada and National Lampoons. Um, you hear most of the most of uh, the documentary of her words. There, she's the one that narrates them from her tapes before she passed away. Uh, you get to see her working with some legends, what we consider legends, um, in the comedy world: the late Harold Ramis, the late John Belushi, Gary, late Gary Shanley, Bill Murray, Garrett Morgan, Ta, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Jane Curtin, um, Lauren Michaels. And even get to hear some of the current comics like Bill Hader and Melissa McCarthy and Amy Poehler uh, talk about her and her her life. So if it's playing in a theater near you, I would recommend you go see this great documentary. It's one of the best one of the best documentaries I've seen all year. Um, Love Gilda. Uh, please go out and see if it's near you. It's not requested near you. So. So, well, that's it uh, for this episode of Weekend Wear. And we appreciate, again, you being with us. Uh, for myself and Ogul, I say to you, stay weird, everyone. Because being weird is really cool. So y'all have it. take it easy. Have a good night. Watch the skies and lock your doors. <laughs> good night.